the, the one salient message that I can send out to anybody who does this kind of work is don't be afraid to talk to each other. And that can be, that can be a heavy lift sometimes. For this episode, I welcome Deputy Superintendent Susan Schiller. Susan Schiller holds the rank of Deputy Superintendent for Boston Emergency Medical Services or Boston EMS and has over 30 years of experience as a critical care medic and clinical researcher. Welcome, Deputy Superintendent Schiller. Hello. It's great to be here. Great to have you. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm excited to have you on board. We've been longtime friends and colleagues and uh I, you know, have a, a great deal of respect for everything that you do and your expertise in what we're going to talk about today, which is discussing and planning for large scale events. Oh, uh, and I wanted to take a little bit of a unique kind of perspective on this. And so we're going to set the stage to discuss a particular event that uh, I always enjoy, which is Fourth uh, of July in Boston. And a little bit about my personal experience so that we can then expand on kind of your experience for um, getting ready for these large scale events. Does that sound like fun? Sounds like great. Sounds, sounds great. Like perfect. Great. So for those of you who are outside of the U.S., um, 4th of July is Independence Day in the United States. It's a big celebration, especially here in Boston, where we consider ourselves having been at the root of uh, independence for the United States. Um, Fourth of July is also the date of my uh, daughter Emma's birthday. And so it's always been a special day for me um, and a special time. Uh, I've always been able to celebrate Fourth of July for the most part uh, in the city, which hosts a really incredible event that is free for all um, and involves uh, a a uh, very large gathering of people along what's called the Charles River, extending through Boston and Cambridge and uh, adjacent cities. Um, at the center of this all is a uh, stage called the Hat Shell, uh, where the Boston Pops eventually play a concert for those attendees. Um, and so I you know, wanted to give a little bit of background because this is a, a pretty large scale event in an already large city. So, uh, Susan, what are some of the what are what's your experience been with the Fourth of July, and and what you know what kind of things do you think about as you prep for an event of this size? Oh boy! Well, so the first thing I should probably say right from the jump is the Fourth of July for us certainly, and I would imagine for any public safety agency begins way before the 4th of July and continues even after it. So I think when, when you think about preparing for large scale events, mass gatherings, anything where you expect um, a, a crowd surge as it were, you have to consider uh, early multidisciplinary, multi-jurisdictional planning because no one agency, no one department can do this on their own. And I think the better communication you have between uh, agencies, departments, bureaus, the police, fire, EMS, park services, de Department of Public Works, sanitation, all of these services, local vendors. Uh, I mean, 
Obviously, Boston depends on all of the local businesses that have food trucks and pop-up stands to, uh, to feed a crowd of a quarter to uh, uh, half to three quarters of a million people uh, at, at any one time. Um, it, it crosses over uh, both city and state law enforcement lines. So you can imagine we have to sit down and start discussing these rather large plans to say nothing of security involved after uh, 2001. So all of this takes a lot of coordinated effort and planning, which begins, quite frankly, two weeks after the July 4th for this year, we start planning for the next one, and so on and so on and so on. Yeah, no, I can imagine. And uh, to give people a little bit more background, a lot of people, um, myself included, would actually line up um, the night before to get a good space. There's an area that's enclosed around the hat shell. And I'm not sure how many people does that enclosed area fit? Do you know uh, what the so approximate the actual, volume of that is? The actual hat shell itself, yeah. I, I actually wouldn't guess because what people have to understand is the hat shell is an open air stadium, an open air um, stage really, as you described it, that is on a, um, peninsula that is bordered by a main thoroughfare. And what happens, as you well know, Steve, uh, for this particular event is that thoroughfare is shut down. So you might have, I don't know, two or 3,000 people in front of the hat shell for a Shakespeare performance or for one of the many free uh, musical uh, performances uh, during the summer. But when you shut down the road and allow people to completely engulf the entire area, you can easily have a half a million people that are at the event. And I, I do think it's also important as we go on to uh, recognize how we used to plan and prep has changed over the years as security has required to get tighter. Uh, I'm sure when you first came to your first event, you had a cooler that you were rolling in and people just pretty much showed up on the lawn, sat down and camped out for, for 12 or 15 hours. But unfortunately, the world being what it is now, we are required to have much tightened security. So it, people don't show up in the same way because nobody is gonna stand out in the street for 10 hours in order to get onto the venue. So I, I have noticed, uh, a, a, a serious shift in the way in which people approach the event and certainly the way in which we plan um, in order to make sure that that it is is safe as well as enjoyable. No, yeah, it has it has changed. I as I mentioned, I've been going um, since I was a kid. Uh, and then after I had my daughter Emma, and we decided that we're going to camp out and make it a special event. My brother and I used to be able to bring a cooler and we brought right, right, you know, right. all sorts of equipment and you could you know, sleep out overnight in, and exactly. it felt very safe to do so. And then as times have changed, that that's no longer you know, feasible. And now I don't think it, you can it, actually bring anything. Yeah, it's unfortunate that Emma won't have that same experience, you know? Yeah, but, yeah. But it, you know, you there know. are other things that, uh, that, that make up for it. So we hope that exactly. on balance, it, 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 it's still an enjoyable event. Exactly. Um, so let's just talk about, yeah, so that that area, as I mentioned, uh, you know, we can, you can get up to, as you mentioned, you know, hundreds of thousands of people in this kind of enclosed area. 
And then outside of that enclosed area, there's hundreds of thousands more people spread across, you know, uh, the river and, and um, throughout the, you know, the, the event. For uh, the area, the hat shell, where there's 100,000 people, it's enclosed by fences. What kind of planning, uh, what kind of things do you need to think about for um, medical services to provide, you know, to provide for that particular um, spot, that area? And then we'll talk about how you provide kind of for the, you know, other areas of the event as well. Yeah, sure. So it's interesting because uh, one of the primary goals of us planning for a mass gathering is to try and mitigate surge at the hospitals. So a lot of the planning that we do is to make sure if we have ill or injured people at the event, we can actually treat and and um, release, is what we call treat and release, right at the event. And we go through quite an extensive process of setting up fully um, contained, if you will, mash tents that have physicians on scene that allow us to treat and, 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 and monitor anyone. And only the sickest or uh, the serious of our injuries will then get transported to the hospital. Because what we don't want to do is um, uh, burden the city of Boston uh, and, and the hospital system that it includes with uh, patients that don't actually need to be in an emergency room. So a lot of our a lot of our, our planning goes to that. Also, a lot of our planning goes to uh, the what we call the what if factor. If the weather isn't beautiful and things don't go off without a hitch, what are all our Plan B and Plan C uh, protocols so that we can readily evacuate? Uh, half a million people, readily shelter a half a million people, um, you know, feed, clothe, and provide sanitary uh, facilities for a half a million people. A lot of that goes into it. And then, of course, it, depending on what the weather is, is projected, if the weather is projected to be very, very hot, we have a whole um, hyperthermia protocol that, that kicks into place. And if we're expecting cooler temperatures or potentially rain, you know, we have other... Uh, of protocols that can play. So all of these types of uh, contingencies go into our planning. Hmm. And so basically you're erecting a, a whole nother hospital system within a system, a whole yes. yeah, that, new that hospital. That is a good way of putting it. That is a good yeah. way of putting yeah. it. Correct. Correct. And, and that that's, I think, incredibly important to really offload that burden on an already burdened system uh, to make sure that, you know, this event doesn't burden those hospitals. And I think, you know, I've seen that <clears throat> as a failing for many other large, you know, scale events in that a lot of people are being transported from that setting to the hospitals. And so you're taking an already, you know, bur a system that already has high volumes of patients uh, that really couldn't, you know, can't handle a surge and then you're surging them on top of it, and it Correct. really creates some chaos. Correct. Yeah, so that and, that and seems now like especially it's... with um, COVID being uh, a driver of high hospital capacity, it's even more at our at our forefront. Right, right. And if you just had to give an estimate, how many patients do you think you see through um, that system during that event on average? Um, July fourth. So. I would say, um, I'd have to look at hard numbers, but I would say Alpha Tent probably sees, I don't know, 20 or 30 patients 
um, which uh, so so we have five five medical tents that are set up throughout the venue. And part of the big planning that we uh, plan for is our inability to make our way quickly through a crowd of a half a million to a million people. So we right. we strategically set up aid stations so that nobody has to go through a large group of people if there is a serious emergency. Uh, maybe a total of what we call patient contacts. I would say anywhere from 60 to 70 uh, patient contacts. And that could be anyone from needing a Band-Aid, somebody needing a Tylenol, somebody um, uh, needing an as asthma treatment, you know, they forget their inhaler, all the way up to somebody having trouble breathing, somebody having chest pain, somebody falling and breaking an ankle, any of those things. Now, obviously, somebody who breaks an ankle is going to go to the hospital. We can't fix that on scene. But sure. we can take care of the more minor stuff, such as Tylenol distribution, uh, albuterol distribution, a diabetic who hasn't eaten and can't get to a to a ice cream fast enough. All of those kinds of things we can easily take care of. And um, we have a full cardiac monitoring station. If somebody is uh, uh, having dizziness or or uh, uh, some other complaint that you you want to rule out a cardiac event, we can work that up. Uh, it, it, we have a little bit less. Uh, capacity at July 4th than we have at, say, the Boston Marathon, because the marathon, we are expecting medical um, compromise, uh, clinical compromise from running a race. So we have more uh, significant lab uh, stations set up. And, and that, that's run through the, the Boston Athletic Association. But with the, with, the, with the July 4th, we are expecting it to be more of a party. And we don't really anticipate nearly as many people uh, to come and request services. We're really there for the, uh, oh my goodness, something bad happens contingency. Right, right. And I, I think you'd be hard pressed not to find an ice cream truck if you're a diabetic. I, I know that. <laughs> that's, that's, that exact, that's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> Although I don't know that yeah. an ice cream truck is the best thing for a diabetic, but, and again, well, it is it is difficult because people can't bring in big picnic lunches in the way that they used to be able to. So, you know, that, that, that's part of the, the preparation that public safety has to have, EMS being a part of that, in that we have to expect people aren't going to bring in big bottles of water and big uh, containers, although it does help cut down on the alcohol. So I suppose that's a good thing. But uh, yeah, I would say maybe we have a dozen to do dozen to do dozen actual clinical transports to a hospital over the course of the whole day. But the majority of the the, the um, patients that we see, we're able to address. And again, that's that's the planning part of it. It's uh, expecting what we might get and then being able to address it right then and there. And I think that exactly that speaks to the amount of um, preparation that you take to make sure that you are addressing the, the issues um, at hand. Correct. Um, so to that end, uh, let's talk a little bit about communications, because I think Again, for a lot of people planning for, you know, these large scale events, you know, communication is where I usually start thinking about, that's where I start the plan, you know, when I'm thinking about these kind of programs. Um, but I think it's all, it's can be something that some people overlook. And as you mentioned, you're talking about multi-jurisdictional communications. Um, and there's not only Boston EMS there, but there's also some private EMS agencies um, in the area and even some local fire departments that may be involved. 
what how do you think about communications for these large events and is there any are there any lessons learned that you can bring you know to our to our listeners about um, either successes or failures in the realm of communication for these kind of large scale events absolutely absolutely the the one salient message that i can send out to anybody who does this kind of work is don't be afraid to talk to each other and that can be that can be a heavy lift sometimes especially when you are dealing with uh operational security issues uh law enforcement has their own concerns which we completely respect but at some point there has to be an understanding that if you have a if you have a stakeholder uh uh buy-in you have a better event and i would send out you are correct obviously boston is a big city with with a very large population and we have uh, mutual aid partners who we rely on who are fabulous uh, we use boston fire department as force multipliers who are fabulous uh, we depend on Mass State Police and Boston Police and the Park Service and Transit Police to assist us as well and are equally fabulous. But no matter what agency is is uh, what agency you're involved with, no matter who you are, how small or how big, ask yourself who has skin in the game. If something goes wrong, who needs to be a part of the conversation? And that includes how do people get to and leave from an event, right? It's those people have to be involved. For Boston, it might be the the, the MBTA. For a small town, it might be something else. It might be cabs. It might be Uber. It might be um, I don't know um, a, bu- a bus system. What whatever whatever it is, they should have uh, idea because there's going to be surges of people going in and out of those what we call pinch points during a large gathering. Um, you know, who cleans up after the event, right? You can't leave the lawn completely filthy. So they need to be at the table. Now, they may not necessarily have as much communication with the EMS services, but when you start planning these kinds of events, all of those types of people really have to be involved. Police, fire, EMS, that's obvious. Those are the easy ones to, to be involved. The ones that aren't so easy are the vendors. How do we feed a half a million people? Or if you're a small town of 10,000, how do you feed 5,000 people? How do you how do you provide food? Uh, not food, rather drink. If it's a hot day, how do we hydrate people? Right? You can't have, even if you have 10,000 people on a lawn for a July 4th party, if you don't make arrangements to have somewhere for them to use the bathroom, you're going to run into problems. <laughs> these are These are things that people who are planning these events need to consider. Because honestly, if you set the framework well, then the rest will follow. Everybody worries about, oh, what happens if the bomb goes off? And yes, of course that's important. But that takes training well beyond three or four or six months. That takes a system-wide training day by day with good clinical care, good clinical judgment, because then when the catastrophe happens, everybody knows how to kick into gear. But the, the, the rather large gathering to make sure that everybody stays safe is how do we get people in safely? How do we get people out safely? If there is, God forbid, a mass shooting or even if there's a, 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 a report, it doesn't have to actually be a shooting for there to be a stampede. I mean, good God, 
the, the terrible um, nightmare that happened over Halloween, uh, where 160 children were killed, that was a tragedy. And that comes from not recognizing you can't get 10,000 people through a space that's made to get 10 people through. So all of these things have to be thought out and, and communicated. And, and your question was about communication, which is to say they have to be spoken about and discussed and decided on um, with all those people that are going to be involved in the, in the incident. The earlier you do it, the better you do it. There is a fine line between communicating too early as plans change and not getting the information out. And I would say, certainly amongst high-level policy uh, makers, high-level stakeholders, those conversations be happening months in advance um, of, of a large-scale event. As you get closer to the event and the plans are, are, are um, solidified, then I think it is very important to start talking to your either middle managers or tactical commanders, whatever whatever your your system uh, is set up to to employ, because they need to be aware of what the plan is shaping up and forming to be. And at a very minimum, the field people, the, the individuals tasked with carrying out the plan need to have it seven days in advance. And even if there are going to be tiny little tweaks at the end, that's okay. Roster tweaks are fine, but the actual plan should be gelled up, hardened, and out to the field folks a week in advance because that gives them time to then turn to their immediate supervisor, their immediate commanders, and say, I don't understand this. What am I supposed to do? If you hand out a plan the morning of an event, there's going to be confusion. I am a big fan of... Um, full briefings prior to any event, uh, either at the venue or at deployment, where, wherever you know your, your folks muster. That has to happen. You know, that's for the, the chief or the, the deputy chief or, or the commanders at each zone to um, go over. These are the highlights. These are the, these are the last minute changes to the plan. You know, this is uh, the updates to the evacuation because we may get lightning. All of those things happen at the actual briefing of the event. But communication of the operational plan, you know, the maps, um, uh, points of access and egress, uh, where you have lost children, where are the facilities, uh, where is security? If it's a smaller venue and you only have one law enforcement agency, who's the lead for that? Telephone numbers, very important. And the other thing that I would recommend is, speaking of communication, it's not only internal communication. There should be, the bigger the agency you are, a designated uh, telephone number for external members to be able to contact their people on the ground. One thing that we learned from the marathon bombing was the first thing our communication system got flooded by is family members calling looking for their for their people that are on duty. So there should be a separate designated number for folks that are working a big event so that people can call and get information immediately because if we don't take care of our own, we can't take care of anyone else. Oh, that's incredibly important. Yeah, and I, I think that's something I don't think most people would put in their plan, which would be how do family of the providers, boots on the ground, uh, get in contact? I think that's that's vitally important and uh, good lesson learned. It sounds from from that from that yeah, event. Yeah, absolutely. And ever since yeah. then, we we always have in big events. We always have this is the number that you call in case you need to contact somebody who's at the event. 
That's great. That's great. Um, we mentioned police, fire, parks, and rec. What are some of the other non-traditional, um, you know, organizations that you think are off, uh, oftentimes overlooked but can be helpful in these events? I'm, I'm thinking about transit. I'm thinking about Department of Public Works. Are there any other kind of non-traditional, um, you know, kind of partners that you can think of that, that sure. have really been helpful in the past? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say um, using the July 4th as a frame of reference, the Community Boating Organization, which is a private uh, community organization that um, does sailing on the Charles River. And for those people who are not familiar where the Hatch Hill is located, I'm sorry, I don't know if you had said it at the top of the hour. Um, the, the, the Hatch Shell is on, like I said, a peninsula, which is bordered one side by the Charles River, which is water, obviously, and the other side by this this uh, expressway, the Starrow Drive. So um, those folks that are expert and knowledgeable about the Charles River and have the uh, logistical support, such as boats, um, to navigate those waters, they're incredibly helpful if we need them. So get them involved in the planning. Um, if you are in a uh, community where there's private land, I mean, certainly, uh, tribal organizations that might be bordering a venue in a public space, get them involved because anybody who has expertise bordering the the event might be helpful if you have uh, emergencies that are going on uh, inside the event. Who else? So I, I'm a big fan of getting um, community involvement. Now, July 4th is not quite so, uh, so necessary for faith organizations, because again, everybody's coming together, having a good time, it's a big party. Um, I wouldn't say that, but in general, if you're planning for a mass gathering, um, it's not a bad idea to have community leaders involved so that they can message out. If you have a community that has multiple languages, get, get those people that speak those languages involved so that they can get messaging out. Because again, you solve half of your problem if people know how to get in, how to get out, what to do in an emergency. If you can get that messaging out before the event, that's one less thing you have to do when the emergency actually happens. So I would say, look to those community leaders, those community organizations, um, Boys and Girls Club. Again, they're not gonna be involved in the actual planning of the event, but they would certainly involve be involved in the communication out. Now in Boston, we have a pretty um, expansive uh, Office of Emergency Management. Uh, we have a very uh, extensive coordinated network with the mayor's office. So we already have those plans in place whereby the mayor is fabulous about getting out the information to the communities. This is what you can bring in. This is what you can't bring in. This is the security measures. But if you're in a smaller community, those are the things that you might want to think about. No, I think those are that's great advice. And, and engaging as many organizations as you can to really just make that, you know, that event smooth, get the right information out to people. It's just, it's imperative for sure. Um, so let's talk, I'm gonna go back uh, to, uh, again, set the stage for a personal experience. Uh, I've been lucky, knock on wood, that for many, many years we had wonderful weather, but one year uh, we did have a, a big thunderstorm, thunder and lightning. Uh, which created uh, a, a significant amount of panic. And I actually remember calling you, I think, a day or two later to kind of ask you um, this question. Uh, you had us all, you know, we all had to evacuate into uh, not the river, thank 
<laughs> fully. As you mentioned, it's bordered by a river, so we didn't have to go into the river. Uh, but we all evacuated into the expressway. And this expressway has a variety of different tunnels. Right. And, uh, you know, so there were, we, we all evacuated into these tunnels and stayed nice and dry. And it was the party carried on. But I had a question as to, you know, if there's an event that happens inside of one of those tunnels, you know, how do you know where people are and how do people identify where they are, especially people that aren't familiar with the city? They're going to say, well, I'm in a tunnel. I, you know, I don't I don't know what else to tell you. What was. Yeah. So how did that come to fruition and, and how did you solve that problem of, you know, this kind of um, evacuation point and knowing how to account for people uh, in that evacuation point? Right. So um, I think it's it's important that you, we, we define how you account for people. So uh, from a from an agency perspective, our folks all have um, a very uh, high level radio system. So we all are in constant communication with each other. And there is a roster that goes out at the beginning of the, the event. Every uh, commander and we, we break our systems up into zones and those zones are identified by a map that has grids and it's it, it, it's a, in a way can think of it as longitude and latitude and everybody knows exactly where they are and exactly what their area is and you can look on the map and say I'm at B7 or I'm at A14 or I'm at C3 and everybody knows where that area is and those evacuation tunnels that you describe are located in certain parts of the grid that we're all familiar with. Again, because communicating the plan out early let us know where those evacuation tunnels were. And we knew that the zone commander A was responsible for tunnel A, which was located in this grid um, uh, area. Zone commander B was responsible for that and so on and so forth. So if something happens in zone B, in or out of the tunnel, the commander there is responsible to transmit that information and then get assistance. We don't necessarily know who physically the the, the general public is in those areas. You know, we, we don't keep track of people in that regard. But if an event happens, we can direct our units into the specific area that we're at. Does that does that answer your question? How we we identify. Yeah. I think any big event that covers more than I would say line of sight. Quite frankly, anything bigger than line of sight events should have a map with um, either uh, physical locations written down where everybody knows it, or a grid map. And the, the bigger it is, the more important a grid uh, a grid becomes. And I make it I, if I make it sound like this is all very smooth. It's not. <laughs> we will often get, we will, uh, full disclosure, I don't want everybody thinking, oh, they have it all put together. Um, as the old saying goes, no plan uh, survives uh, first engagement. We, we struggle as well with, is that a repeat call? Is that the same caller? Uh, units, can you verify that you know, you're on scene with the second patient? No, it's only one patient. It happens all the time. You just have to roll with it and do your best. And, and that's why we drill so often with using uh, grid points because it cuts down on some of that confusion. Yeah, and you brought up another good point, which is that you drill these things. Um, how important is you know practicing these things prior to the event and, and what kind of you know things do you do to prepare for these kind of major scale events? I mean, we have the Boston Marathon, you have 4th of July, 
even first night, not as big as New York City, but you know, these are all major events. You don't want to say, oh, well, you did a great job last year. I'm sure we'll do great next year. What are the, some things that you do as, as preparation? How do you train for these kind of large scale events? So ideally, um, an agency or an organization would have the ability to, to, to train regularly. And by that, I mean setting up and drilling and practicing. Uh, those agencies like Boston that are actually very busy, that have a lot of large-scale events, we, we have built in drilling because we actually do it in real life. Um, that said, you can never practice enough because nothing is ever perfect. So if you work for an organization or an agency that doesn't do any large events, then it is vitally imperative that you you plan one, you build it in, you you uh, simulate an event so that you your, your teams can practice. If you work for a mid or a large scale agency, while it's not as important because you you can practice it as you do it, uh, it's always beneficial to get more experience. Um, I am a big fan of HCEP, which is the uh, mnemonic and homeland security for uh, operational planning and drilling and evaluating. Uh, it gets more complex and complicated the more uh, thin our ranks become. Everybody knows healthcare and certainly EMS is um, critically understaffed. And, and I know from personal experience, we struggle with being able to meet our standard operating needs and allowing people release time for drilling. But when you can do it, do it. It, it, it. It's always helpful. No, I agree. And it also helps you find those things that you may think have been planned really well, but in actuality, when you try to actualize that plan isn't going to work. Uh, and it, that gives you that kind of safe space to then, you know, kind of reactualize that plan and, and not have to do it real time. Uh, Correct. Which is and, important. And, you know, as hard as drilling is, I encourage people to do it as realistically as possible. So if you're going to have three or four agencies involved, try and get those three or four agencies to drill together. Um, if, if you only drill with your own small team, then when it comes time to integrate into a larger plan, it can get a little bit, wait, we, we worked so well when we drilled it, what happened? Well, what happened is you, you introduced a, a variable that wasn't at the drill, so you didn't necessarily know how to address it. it. It obviously gets more difficult the more people that are involved and some agencies, you know, yes, I'll come, but then they can't, understandably. But perfect scenario would be to train as you fight and fight as you train. That's, that's the mantra. That's the good. That's a good mantra to stick with for sure. So, uh, so this has given us a really good kind of overview of some of the things to think about for preparing for you know kind of large scale events from communication, you know which uh, organizations to engage, as well as how to uh, distribute that plan. You know, I think maps are incredibly important and rethinking you know how you distribute, um, you know, that, that information is, as well, any, anything that, um, in your experience, and you have over 30 years of experience doing this, that has, um, gone exceptionally well, something that you're like, we planned for this and it just went exceptionally well because we planned any, any particular event or, uh, well, or I mean, moment I mean, that you I mean, can I mean, think of. 
at the, at the risk of saying what um, folks around the world have said, um, I think the Boston Marathon bombings is the pinnacle of, uh, uh, I don't want to say performance, but uh, example. It is, it is uh, the, the reason that Boston did as well as we did was because we were prepared for it. Uh, and there was no small part of luck that was involved. I think anybody who doesn't acknowledge that is not being fair to other systems that haven't had as much uh, success at a big event. We had a lot of things going in our favor, uh, not the least of which our mass casualty system was set up because we were prepared. And all we did was shift from what we consider a mass gathering event to a mass casualty event. Uh, that That's really the only switch that was flipped. But the reason we were able to do that so quickly and so fluidly was because we train all the time and we plan for it and we drill for it. So when I say drill, it comes from personal experience and knowing how that works. Yeah, no, and I think, you know, that's been widely recognized as one of the events that, um, you know, was incredibly un unfortunate, but also the amount of lives saved and the expert, you know, uh, response to that was, is basically kind of what sets the standard for, you know, for how to, how to, you know, react to these types of events. And, and as you mentioned, it wasn't that you, you know, just were able to flip a switch, you had planned for it and drilled it and planned it and drilled it, planned it and drilled it. And, you know, that's why we were able to have such a, a wonderful response to that. Exactly. I guess in a way, what you can say is Boston pre-installs that switch. Right. <laughs> so, so it's ready when you need it. <laughs> right. That's, that's ready when you're, yeah. Ready when, it, when you need it. Uh, and, and then you know, I, I, yeah. I, I just I just want to add for, for those for folks out there who work for much smaller agencies who say, oh, you know, we don't have that many calls and we, we, we can't we can't possibly do this. You can you can drill every day. You go to a car accident with three or four patients, you know, get your head in, in an MCI mode plan for, you know, I only have two two EMTs and I've got four patients. How do I handle this? That's technically an MCI because your patients overwhelm your resources. You know, if, if you practice that, you set that up, you do that on a daily basis, you'd be surprised at how often you can, you can uh, uh, I don't want to say play, but you can practice. You can pra practice this behavior. Yeah, I think one of the most important things, and, and you know, we used to do this, uh, I, as you know, I worked for Boston MedFlight in the air medical realm. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that you see in aviation is they're constantly um, drilling and planning even on a flight home, they say, oh, what, what would we do if we lost an engine? Um, and then you go right. through that. You know, you're just on your way back to the base. And sometimes you're like, I, you know, I just want to get back and finish my paperwork. But thinking, OK, e each call, what am I going to do if? What would I do if I had to do a surgical airway on this patient? Even though they're safely intubated, what would I need to do? And I think you can bring that same kind of thinking to, like you mentioned, everyday calls, so that when something happens, you're prepared for it. Correct, correct. All right, well, believe it or not, I, this went so quickly, uh, we're running up against our time. I'd like to see if you have any last pearls you wanna share with our listeners about uh, this topic and 
uh, how to how to plan for mass mass uh, gathering events. Uh, you know, the only the only uh, I guess last comments I would have, uh, pearls, if you will, is um, this is a team sport, um, and I, sometimes that can be hard, certainly for EMS providers who are so used to being autonomous fighters. Uh, you know, we're we're given a lot of uh, authority to make some pretty serious life and death decisions. And sometimes it can be hard for us to say, oh, we, we need the aid or assistance of other agencies, other people. But that is the only way to successfully do mass gatherings, large events. Um, and that's, that, that includes not only our own agencies, you know, multiple units, multiple groups, but also multiple agencies, multiple um, uh, jurisdictions. Uh, that, that is really what I have found throughout my career uh, that is what what makes a successful event is when everybody kind of comes together to to make it uh, a successful event. Well, thank you, thank you so much for all that you do. You're just an integral part of the EMS system here in Boston, and uh, you make this organ you know you make that organization uh, a wonderful uh, organization with some of the oh, the, most, so the best EMS professionals. I, I've That's ever worked with, so I appreciate that. Yes, thank and you thank so you much. for your valuable I, insight. You are you are more than welcome anytime. It was a pleasure talking with you. Great, great. Well, thank you again, uh, Deputy Superintendent Schiller from Boston EMS. Uh, we really appreciate you spending that time with us today. And if you enjoyed this podcast and have an interest in more topics like this, or just have an interest in medicine at the extremes, make sure to visit our website at worldextrememedicine.com. Explore our webinars, our podcasts, our upcoming courses, as well as the array of other helpful content. Uh, thank you all and stay safe. And thank you, Doc. Uh, thank you, uh, Susan Schiller. You're very welcome. Thanks for listening to the episode. Please feel free to rate, review and subscribe on whichever platform you're listening to. Please also head over to the World Extreme Medicine website where you can find more engaging content on extreme medicine webinars and indeed the collection of courses from our global network, including humanitarian, disaster relief, expedition, space, military, tactical and performance medicine. Thanks again.